Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Eichen, and this is my conversation with Max Brumis, one of the uh, two authors behind the book The Caesar's Palace Coup, which is a deep dive into the buyout and then uh, restructuring and bankruptcy of Caesar's Entertainment. So this is, um, the book is a deep dive into the world of distressed and the many funds and, and actors in there and the, the wrestling and wrangling and backstabbing behind the curtains, including firms like Apollo, GSO, Oak Tree, Appaloosa. And in our conversation, um, we talk about how to approach such a complex story, how to make it digestible, finding, finding turning points and finding, finding access, what makes a good distressed investors and, and the culture at these, at these firms. And we talk about how the, how the space has evolved. There's, there's been a lot of changes in, in distressed. And so we get into, um, what that looks like today. And also the some of the maneuvering by Apollo and uh, whether or not it had sort of longer term uh, implications. And I really hope you enjoy it. The usual caveat, none of this is investment advice. Everything expressed is just uh, our opinion. Don't invest based on anything that, that we're talking about. And with that, let's go. Oh, Max, thank you so much for joining me. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Better, thanks for having me. I, I know I'm a little bit late um, on, on the book. But uh, but it was a fantastic read. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was really um, for me. It was really interesting because it really went into into the nitty gritty. And you, like we just talked about, you guys didn't shy away from um, from getting into into the weeds and into the details. But sort of my my take on it was I spent a little bit of time in a seat, sort of underwriting credit funds and being in sort of the the allocator position. And it always struck me as a fairly little bit of a clubby world and, and I think you portray that uh, that picture too in the book where people sort of know each other they're competitors but it's it's a small enough world that everybody knows each other and I was I'm, I'm curious how you approached it you know as a research project as a book in terms of getting access to people getting people to talk in a world where um, you know it's maybe less less normal for the outside really to to see the inner workings and, and people to to spill um, you know, to, to, to spill the tea. So how, how did you, how did you go about that in terms of access research and just breaking in and, and getting people to tell the interesting stories? Yeah, no, great question. And, and, you know, late to the party, I think we're, we're hoping this is the sleeper hit and <laughs> comes a, a smashing bestseller after, you know, a year on the, on the market so far, uh, it's been, been, uh, it's been great and kind of continues to, uh, yeah, people keep continue, it, it continues to resonate with a lot of people because of the, the question that, that you just asked. Um, it, because this world is so, it has such a large impact on the economy and society, but it, it still is a small universe of, of players who, for the most part, do all know each other and have been around and have ties that go back to Drexel, Byrne, Lambert. Um, and, uh, like a lot of the main funds in, in our story. Um, and the way that, you know, the reason why we thought that we could write this book, um, you know, me along with my, my co-author without whom this wouldn't have been possible either, uh, Sajid Indap of the Financial Times, um, uh, was because we were, uh, you know, very well sourced in the right places and had a reputation, uh, you know, um, amongst the key players for understanding their industry and, and getting it right. Uh, and that was, you know, that was just the beginning. And then the second part was that there was, um, it, because of the way bankruptcy works, there's a very rich 
trove of public disclosures for you know these mega chapter 11s where uh, you know a company files for bankruptcy and all of a sudden everything does become the public domain uh, and that company's financials and history and all the uh, different creditors who are uh, you know participating in the case are all of a sudden now disclosed whereas previously they wouldn't have to be and, and so is a lot of their dirty laundry quite frankly <laughs> and in this particular case, there, you know, there was an amazing uh, examiner's report uh, by a former Watergate prosecutor named Richard Davis uh, that uh, had, you know, gone, gone through millions of documents and interviewed lots of people already uh, that we couldn't have gotten access to otherwise, uh, and did a very thorough report looking into a lot of the uh, very controversial transactions that happened before the company went bankrupt. Uh, so we, you know, we had a lot of, uh, let's say, controversial detail already on the record that we could use as leverage, and then we knew the right people to go to uh, to to try to get them to talk about it. Um, you know, and some people happy to talk because they, you know, they made a lot of money and they they come off looking you know pretty good. Uh, and you know, other people had to talk because they, you know they would want to supplement the record. Uh, so it was it was really you know it had to be uh, you know, being plugged in to begin with and then you know doing the work uh reading all of the existing documents uh and then going out to the you know the, the people and pounding the pavement to get them to to supplement the record so so is that is there then a chronology to it where first you talk to sort of the people who are interested in the book who love telling their stories who who, who booked the win and then towards the end you go to everybody who wasn't willing in the, in the beginning and say well this book is getting done anyways and you might as well like, or, or did you experience people who still kind of shunned you, shunned you out? Across the spectrum, right? I mean, we, we are, we interviewed nearly 200 people, uh, for, for the book. Um, and, uh, you know, all, all of those, we just kept on background, which was into how it works in the industry. Um, saying that there's, you know, no attribution to that conversation itself, but that the information we use is, is going to be in the book if we can corroborate it. And a lot of times we, you know, we could corroborate it. Um, uh, so that, uh, you know, it, it was a combination of that. Going out to friendlies, people we already knew and had good relationships with. Um, and, you know, some people that were just supportive of the project in general. Uh, right. Like there was you know, some people that are mentioned in the acknowledgments um, that I, I uh, co-founded a, a publication you know, dedicated to uh, distressed debt investing, really. Um, and, uh, it, you know, when I it was a startup and after four years, it was, you know, it was on, on its way. And I, I, I left with you know, just a couple projects. And it was this book in part came about because you know, people reached out to me and said, there hasn't been a good book on distressed debt investing since, you know, vulture investors really dedicated to this industry. Uh, and you're going to have some time on your hands. Why don't you uh, uh, look into that? And Caesars, to me, was clearly the best story. Uh, and so uh, you know, kind of started the ball. Rolling. So so tell me about the story, because it's a it's a massive deal, right? It takes years first. The deal gets done, the company, they, they kind of try to um, preserve, uh, basically try to prevent the bankruptcy. Right? And, it, it, and as you mentioned, like the, the docket and that report, like you have so many, so many pieces and so many parties to this deal. So how did you approach, approach this as a story? Like what were, 
what are you from your point of view like the the kind of the key turning points or even points where you were were there any points where you where you were surprised as you dug in and you're like oh wait a second i didn't i didn't really understand it and this is actually much more important as an as an event or as a development than i thought like how did this story evolve for you and like how did you structure it for, for the book yeah i mean it's, it's a great like if we had our brothers i think we would have written about 300 words more. It would have been some, you know, some, some Robert Caro-esque uh, deal where we, we got into like, you know, the history of every one of the characters from, since birth and, uh, you know, went back to the, the founding of, of, you know, Caesars and Harris itself, which we did. I mean, there was actually a couple extra chapters that got cut. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I entered it um, just covering uh, Caesars as a, as a distress credit in 2013, 2014. Um, the LBO uh, was initially agreed to in 2006, uh, and it, was, it didn't close until 2008, right? which is obviously the worst time ever. And so they closed this 30-odd um, you know, billion uh, uh, leveraged buyout, um, you know, paying a, a massive multiple for this company at the top of the market. Uh, that immediately, you know, fell into distress with $25 billion debt uh, it, it, because of the great financial crisis. So it was, it was really poorly timed. And, you know, the intervening years, 2008 to 2013, when I started covering it, it had been, uh, you know, there had already been a lot of liability management here, right? Uh, financial engineering to try to extend the runway, and can, you know, keep the option alive by the private equity sponsors, um, Apollo and TPG, mainly Apollo. Uh, and, and so, you know, that from the time I started, I picked it up to 2015 uh, during its bankruptcy was really where a lot of the action was happening. Uh, and, you know, that's where, that's where the niche publications, like the one that, you know, that I, I started up and the one that I currently work for at, um, at, at Fitch uh, as part of Levfin Insights. Uh, you know, they cover the nitty gritty of the uh, creditor organization and hiring advisors and, you know, the, and the company striking a distressed exchange or an amendment to extent. So all these things are, are massively important to all the institutions that hold the debt of, of corporations like Caesars. Uh, and, and so that's, that was kind of like my vantage point. And then when it filed, you know, that's another clear uh, point in the stand in the, in the narrative. And then it's a you know, kind of very neat um, package from be between the time that it filed in 2015 and uh, the time that its plan was confirmed in 2017 of two years of you know, kind of like all out warfare as much as possibly you know, can be in, 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 the, you know, in the courtrooms and corporate litigation um, all the way through to the halls of Congress. Uh, you know, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing sprawling story uh, that had this, you know, very actual, actually very neat narrative arc. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a, a good time to end it because at that point, you know, and it doesn't always happen at that point, there was this massive, like it had Caesars had recovered. It was massively valuable. And there was a clear victor where, you know, the, the, the junior creditors that were totally out of the money and looking like they were, you know, just dead in the water. At the time that the company filed for bankruptcy, had had really turned the case around, um, uh, you know, through every tactic you know, that could possibly be, and a bunch of serendipity, uh, and you know, against all odds, uh, scored a you know a, a, a 
a very clear victory over Apollo and the sponsors. Uh, and so that was, that was clearly, you know, where we were going to focus all of our attention, where the book revolves around. Yeah. And I mean, the, it's sort of amazing. You, you, you managed to capture a few of these moments, right? Where towards the end, um, the junior creditors kind of get emboldened and there are these quotes like, oh, we're coming for the, uh, for the blood of Apollo. And I think Tepper, there's a, a quote from David Tepper at some point where he's like, oh, I'm going to pick out, like, we're going to take over, um, um, you know, the, 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 the private properties of, of some of the Apollo uh, principles. I'm going to pick out new curtains. Like there was a lot of um, like the, the, the sea change that had happened. And, and I'm curious how you think about um, kind of that development, because it's, it's, it's almost like a little bit night and day. And like, what did, what, did that hinge primarily? Like, just, just walk me through a little bit how um, that, that turning point and, and um, whether it was at all, whether they could have at all kind of really anticipated this the, you know that that kind of win yeah i it was it the, the it's such a great story because it really is the clash of the titans here right i mean like you you have apollo on on the one hand uh that's the the sponsor and probably the most you know aggressive and and well-known private equity sponsor one of the largest uh private equity firms in the world today um and, and you know and growing in power and influence uh, and, and, you know, and usually they steamroll people like all the time. And, you know, like they, they are, they're aggressive. They, they just, they are the market. They create the, this, these large deals that um, uh, creditors want to participate in. Uh, and if things don't go well, then you want to, you know, then they pick people apart and turn them against each other and are, are very savvy, uh, like all, almost, you know, all are the house at this point. They're, you know, they're the real dominant player. Um, but the, the distressed investing world has some, you know, some other very, you know, very large, aggressive uh, people willing to fight. And in this case, they're in there too, on the opposite side with, uh, you know, David Tepper's Appaloosa, uh, uh, you know, being one of the funds, uh, Oak Tree, uh, uh, you know, very uh, enormous asset manager that has uh, its roots in distressed investing, uh, uh, you know, led, you know, on the face by Howard Marks. Um, and, uh, you know, then a couple of other uh, firms like, uh, uh, you know, Canyon were in there that also ha have their roots back in the, the Drexel Burnham days. Uh, and, and then in the first, you know, in the first lean debt, most famously, uh, Elliott management, which is, you know, no shrinking violet either. Right. And they, you know, they come out guns blazing this one as well. Uh, so all of these, you know, all of these uh, funds and the characters that, you know, that lead them are uh, uh, well capitalized. And if they, you know, believe in their, uh, their, their position, willing to fight, you know, you can be right, but you're not going to have the, you know, the capital to pull it off. Usually that's, you know, it's a death knell when you're dealing with Apollo. Uh, so I, this was just so unique in that, you know, these guys were willing to stand up for what was ultimately uh, a lot of um, uh, deemed to be by the independent examiner up to $5 billion worth of, um, uh, you know, corporate malfeasance and uh, uh, actual or, um, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, 
uh, fraudulent conveyance, you know, like a type of type of fraud uh, where assets were moved from the, the debtor that filed for bankruptcy prior to uh, chapter 11 at the time that the company was insolvent for less than reasonably equivalent value. Uh, so the, there are these very, very dramatic examples of these asset transfers and other types of um, uh, financial uh, engineering that took place that were uh, you know, very, like ultimately very good facts that the hedge funds challenging Apollo could use as leverage and then ultimately sue over and likely win if they took it to the like you know the ends of the earth um, that they they were they were willing to stand and fight for. Sometimes the facts are you know it's like it's ugly, <laughs> you know like a creditor could get totally primed and get nothing and like a deal could be cut around people's back and they go from like ninety to zero. Um, uh, but the facts don't work in their favor. You know, it's just like, oh, geez, you know, it's like, I, I can't really fight that. In this case, they they were like, a lot of the distressed investors saw them as being so egregious, some of the like the best night and day examples uh, that they could they could get behind that they were willing to. And so I think that's that's why you had, you had very, very good facts for creditors that were willing to challenge some transactions that could have compromised their position. Uh, and, you know, a lot of patient money. So that's interesting. And it struck me still when I, I when I was reading the book, right? As you mentioned, there are a lot of high profile names, right? There's the, there's Canyon GSO, Oak Tree, um, uh, Appaloosa. And, and it, and it struck me that from the beginning, Apollo was always basically always aggressive, right? And sort of, um, I think the 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 deal person um, appointed to uh, to Caesars had the somebody called him a pet rattlesnake. Um, so I think this and, and there's some examples or quotes from from Mark Rowan about how the culture of the firm is to be sort of ruthless and and, and aggressive. And then there are moments when on the other side of the fence, when it seems to me that maybe Oak Tree is an example where different factions within the firm are sort of debating how how aggressive they should be and how much and because there's other um parts of the empire that could be affected and how much publicity do you want and and it strikes me that that it wasn't always clear um who would win in terms of how how hard they would push back and and how much they would be committed to to fighting and then there's a lot of horse trading like people do calls they strike side deals elliot does a, a side deal right so how do you think can can you compare and contrast a little bit for me the the cultures of these different firms and whether there's sort of are each of these sort of unique creatures or is there like a delineation between the hedge funds and the more private equity style players or how do you think about their their approaches to this business and, and culturally how they you know the, the, this aggressiveness and, and willing willingness to fight it, that's a great point. I, I, I mean, that's in this in this world, each of these firms does have their own personality, totally, <laughs> right? Like, and and we really I, like we really do go into detail about the origins of of Apollo uh, and and some of the other ones, but uh, you know, Apollo really was the most interesting because it was you know it was it was defined by uh, you know, like I think we we write brilliance and impunity, uh, willing to push 
the bounds to the, the very, very edge of what is, you know, was what's permissible um, under, you know, under the law, under uh, the credit docs, um, and uh, under just, you know, uh, a, a general everyday business. And that that does go back to, uh, uh, you know, Mike Milken's firm, Drexel Burnham. That's where, where Leon Black was one, you know, more uh, uh, one of the uh, senior directors at the firm at the time that it went bankrupt uh, for, you know, like massive fraud and insider trading charges. Michael Milken ultimately went to jail, you know, was pardoned uh, under the Trump administration. But uh, it, it, like during, <clears throat> at the time, uh, you know, that was uh, like a, a really, uh, you know, like a, a aggressive firm that was found to have been doing illegal things. Uh, and, you know, some people emerged from that unscathed, uh, but like they, uh, it, you know, ultimately that culture uh, pervaded a lot of the, uh, uh, I think, fixed income investing, restructuring and in other financial worlds. Uh, you know, I think, I think, with respect to compensation, like the outsized compensation for Drexel Burnham was one of the things that led to this arms race for executives. Uh, so, you know, you saw people making that much money there, you know, that, that it, it went across the, across the board. Uh, well, you know, this is people felt really entitled to a lot of money. Uh, in order to do that, you had to get super aggressive. And then these, the second is really knowing, like being brilliant about knowing, um, like everything about the credit documents uh, and and like stress deals and the companies where the um, the value would lie if you had to restructure the company in a chapter 11. Uh, and so uh, Apollo was born out of that, uh, you know, Leon Black left and, um, uh, you know, Josh Harris and Mark Rowan were younger Drexel uh, alums at the time, but they didn't yeah, they, you know, they weren't the co-founders per se at the time, but ultimately they they wound up obviously being standouts that that negotiated the co-founder title and wound up being this this just basically this three-legged stool um, uh, between those you know those three men um, that that got the reputation out of finding these deals and pushing pushing the limit. Um, and so you know we so we go through that, and that's that is the kind of like the start of that culture. Uh, and it, it, you know, it, it really, it's, you know, it, it's described as being a dysfunctional family and all that entails. So it's, you know, it's, it, it's like, it, it was, it, it is really interesting to, to see how that kind of winds up impacting, uh, how they participate in the market. Um, especially once they, you know, you go from scrappy upstart to, you know, consistently outperforming other people. You know, always being involved in in litigation and somehow coming out ahead. You know, and like always finding always finding a way to you know like very billions esque, like always finding a way out of it to to win. Um, and you know, ultimately, it's yeah, they gain power, influence, assets under management, and that's just that's the reputation that they garner. Some of these other firms, I, you know, Oak Tree was around, uh, and you, you, like what. It, it, it's kind of you know similar and interesting in that Howard Marks uh, and some of the partners um, uh, were I think at TCW trading a lot of the high yield debt that was you know was uh, um, uh, you know offered and sold and issued by this junk bond uh, world that Drexel had uh, created um, and, and so you know they understood the same types of things. 
Um, you know, but I think it was, you know, it was still like, I think it, it, it wound up becoming this just theoretical thing where, okay, you know what, we can invest in a lot of this high yield, higher yielding debt, make more money, even with the defaults, if we are smart about participating in the restructurings, uh, and just grow assets under management as well. And yeah, I think the personalities founding that, that firm, uh, you know, just, just a little bit different, not like not like at Drexel, you know, coming from somewhere else, just being a little bit more wonky. Uh, Appaloosa, you know, famously was, you know, led by uh, David Tepper. And, and like, that's like his story comes from, it's kind of like one of those, those, you know, grudge stories where he, you know, he's passed over for promotion at Goldman Sachs by, you know, by like former New Jersey governor, John Corzine, whose house he did buy, by, you know, that's where that and raised, story partially yeah. comes from, right? And, uh, you know, so he's got a chip on his shoulder. And ultimately, at the time that that, um, that Caesars is happening, Appaloosa is, you know, this multi-billion dollar fund. that's almost all David Tepper's money. So it's not even they're not, it's not even uh, managing money on behalf of pensions and, uh, and insurance companies. And like, it's, it's something that, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, um, uh, like more, yeah, more the personality of this is kind of like, one um uh, uh yeah, i yeah like I, it kind of claimed um uh you know vanguard of the industry but it's just still his own man so it's like the, these are very interesting and different cultures you know we try to provide some of that history and we try to provide you know like in all these cases it, it's it, while each of the principles do show up right at this time the firms are so big they're still, you know, the front men for these deals are, you know, are different, younger players, you know, for the most part coming from Ivy League schools, and some of them know each other and um, uh, trying to make a name for themselves, but still, you know, emulating their, you know, their founders and their leaders in, in some ways and showing up like that. Um, so it is, you know, it is, it is fascinating to look, it always, it's always important too for business journalism. To understand what the culture of the you know the firm is that you're covering uh, and and the individuals that are participating in those deals, uh, and and that and that's that's some of the color that winds up being important as well for the the the, the type of niche reporting where you're like okay, um, you know who who just bought a lot of these bonds in Hertz or in a, a you know a recent. Incora uh, is an you know, auto parts uh, supplier. Like, if it's you know, if it's if it's um, a Fidelity or you know Franklin Mutual or you know something like that, you're like, okay, all right, you know, that's fine. You know, we can we can strike a deal with it. But it's like if it's uh, going to be Apollo or Aurelius or uh, you know nowadays you know, Silverpoint. Um, these, you know, these firms are known for being much more aggressive. You have to factor that into your game theory. Yeah. And, and I was curious, um, since you spent a lot of time in that space and, um, and it seems like the Caesars was sort of part of that space also changing a lot in terms of what's, what's acceptable and acceptable behavior. Um, there's there's so many things to to pick up on here, but like let's let's start with with one is sort of what makes somebody a really good distressed investor, and and you touched on it, but um there's there's this one moment where um they start I think it's the lawyers and they start debate you know I think it's about the guarantees and they're like saying there's like 
it's this and this and this. And they start a debate, well, is it, you know, does it mean and or does it mean or? Right? Like, do all of these conditions have to be fulfilled or not? And and I'm just I was sitting there reading and I was like, you have to pay attention to an incredible amount of details, right? Um, and so in that moment, I was like, wait, maybe that's what makes a, a great investor, you know, in the space, having like a handle on on everything that's going on with the deal. There are other moments in the book where I think um, the person that's, you know, yelling the loudest and like doesn't get intimidated in the negotiation and just like has stamina and aggressiveness and and, and is not maybe doesn't have any shame. Like there's different moments where I'm like, what is actually sort of the perfect combination of um of being a good investor in this space and and maybe it's not maybe it depends on the situation but I'm, I'm curious how you think about the people who start to stand out there and you know yeah i, I you know i think it, it's it's always going to be someone who's <clears throat> firms who are the most successful in this industry are those who have a, expert knowledge and a good handle on the you know the legal aspect uh, the finance, understanding valuation, uh, and then the, the industry knowledge itself mixed with game theory, right? And there's just a lot of that understanding of, you know, of game theory. And uh, some people are more savvy with the press. Uh, you know, some people are, uh, you know, just, you know, more savvy with the, um, uh, you know, orchestration of creditor organization. Uh, some people are, you know, more savvy or, or you know, just more willing to uh, be an iconoclast and go against the grain. I think, you know, Marble Gate stands out as, as one of those types of firms. Um, so, it, but it's always, it's always going to be someone like the basics are got to understand the credit documents and you got to understand the numbers uh, and you have to get the industry, the underlying industry of the company. Uh, and so that's why it's so interesting. Like you really, you either, have people that are just brilliant and kind of know uh, those things, you know, themselves. A lot of people in this industry come from backgrounds as uh, lawyers. So bankruptcy, you know, you'll see bankruptcy attorneys that are, um, the, the, you know, the heads of several of these firms. Um, uh, uh, you know, or they'll have acquired that knowledge uh, uh, and, and, and apply it. So that, that, you know, that's why it really, it's difficult to get into. And, you know, sometimes it's not even as lucrative because it's so competitive, you know, like <laughs> right now, a lot of people uh, saw, and I, you know, I saw one of your past, uh, uh, you know, blog posts was, is on vulture investors and the times like, you know, Mike, Mike price. And, you know, it, it was like, if you just understood that the, the bankruptcy, there was bargains to be had by buying up the debt of a company going bankrupt, uh, you would be, you know, unique now everyone got that and they saw these amazing returns for you know two decades or, or or the like and so by the time uh you know the late aughts and uh you know in the last really yeah the last 10 years post great financial crisis sold around it, it was extremely competitive so you not only had to understand these things perfectly but you had to have a pretty decent size and be willing to throw your weight around yeah i, w I was curious about that um and it struck me when we were underwriting funds in the space that because there was sort of a limited amount of distress and, and a lot of dry powder that a lot of players were kind of, you know, sort of moving towards more opportunistic deals and, and just sort of doing things that are um, less classic distress. And 
I before I'd seen that I was I was thinking that scale is an advantage in the space because you can take a larger stake, you have more resources, maybe uh, more analysts dedicated to specific sectors, maybe you get better lawyers. I'm not sure, but I it's my my rule of thumb was a little bit that scale can be a benefit, but then if you're sitting on a lot of dry, dry powder, you're um, it becomes a challenge, and you have to obviously sustain that organization. So I'm so I'm curious how you think now about that sort of you know the the smaller nimble players versus I mean Apollo Oak Tree those are just behemoths at at this point and and how that plays yeah. out. I I think the ones that are consistently in it now are are those that are you know the ones of size uh, and the very few new entrants per se because like you said there's I, the 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 um, distress cycles are. Um, are, there's fewer of them and they're more abbreviated because the mass, you know, federal stimulus that have come during the largest two downturns like quasi recessions, the great financial crisis, really, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, federal intervention uh, that, that, that shortened the, you know, the longevity of the crisis. Uh, and then 2020 during the pandemic, I mean, it just incredibly abbreviated. So it was a very, very short window of time. Um, so the like the funds that are dedicated to it are, like the intervening years, the way that they make money is, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, like fighting each other for every last penny in a phenomenon we call creditor on creditor violence. Uh, and that really just helps to be part of the, uh, it, it helps to be very large so that you can, you know, step up and provide uh, dip financings or the financings that will allow a company to stay out of bankruptcy. Just being on multiple sides of a deal, giving backstop fees, you know, I, and, 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 you know, a perfect example is, is Hertz, um, you know, Apollo raised money quickly as, as the pandemic had struck, just like having that reputation to be able to go out there and raise money when it's needed, having that dry powder, when things turn quickly, acting quickly and, you know, and then making these asymmetric, um, uh, kind of risk return investments, and I like either buying into the you know the 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 top tier debt when it's when it's discounted, which is you know very few opportunities to do that, but just jumping right into the top the first lien, something like Hertz, and, and then providing the dip, and then um, you know participating in the exit financing, get some warrants on top of that, and all of a sudden it's a home run, right? You know, like in distress, and and, and then not having. And not having distress be your only strategy for the intervening years. So you know, being an like being a private equity firm, constantly looking for deals, M and A, being involved in tech, and uh, and I've seen like that same type of um, knowledge of of the credit documents and you know and and valuation. Uh, really, distressed investors, all of them, you know, profess to be value investors, right? I think like. The equity market is insane. It's just ludicrous, and it's not—you know—it's completely nonsensical. And debt is no, it's it—it's—you know—it's more uh, 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 intelligent. It's more responsive. It's more indicative of the true value of a company. And so, uh, but now it—it's also acting irrational at times. You know, there's there's debt of companies that have like a thirty billion dollar market cap that is you know trading at fifty cents on the dollar. Like what? What is that all about? Um, uh, What's that? Is eight, that? Or twelve billion dollars? You know, it's like like at sometimes it was AMC, right? Because the meme right. stocks, or okay, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Carvana, um, or you know, American Airlines, briefly, like okay. uh, Carnival. Like it was just you know, it, there's there's this big disconnect because uh, 
of that stimulus. And we'll see how that, that plays out as it wears, as it wears off. So, it, you know, the strategies definitely have evolved to include capital structure arbitrage, the ability to take advantage of, um, you know, equi equity upside when necessary, like funding a, a distress SPAC is one of the recent, um, uh, uh, you know, in vogue transactions. So you see like these SPACs are, you know, for the most part, a lot of, a lot of companies that probably shouldn't go public. Maybe some of them are pretty interesting. They've got some real assets. Uh, the valuations that they were thinking are not going to work. Uh, all the people that were part of the original funding of the SPAC redeemed. So the company has no money to actually perform its business plan, but the sponsors really need to get it over the finish line. So, uh, you know, savvy distressed investor comes in and says, all right, let, I'll, how about some secure debt that converts, right? I, I'm at the top of the capital structure that covered those structures. So some hard money lending at size, you know, for these, these companies that have, you know, real assets that might be a little bit speculative, come in there. There's a lot of, you know, middle market uh, firms that are pretty large that are distressed. There's the, uh, the cannabis industry, you see a lot of that. Um, and, you know, and still the willingness, <laughs> the brave souls that, that are willing to jump into the various commodity plays, uh, which has burned more than one distressed fund. But, uh, you know, these they still look at um, you know those the oil and gas midstream uh, refiners and you name it and we'll 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 jump in when they think that there's uh, some money to be made but it really it really has evolved uh, from from the days of oh you know I'm just going to buy an, an, an a good company with a bad balance sheet restructure it take partial ownership or full ownership in a chapter eleven to all of these other different um, strategies. Yeah, I want to I want to take a, a step back for for a second, because um, something that that came to me just sort of thinking about the original transaction, uh, meaning that the buyout of of Caesars, and then obviously it gets hit by the crisis, and I was trying to figure out how does one think about luck, luck versus skill there, because there's an element of okay maybe you're maybe you're overpaying, uh, maybe it's very highly levered, but there's also an element of okay you're doing it at an unfortunate point in time and you and, and the ceo is very good at one thing right like he's he's great at the loyalty program but maybe he's not i mean you, you tell me but maybe he's not like a restructuring or operations guy when um when he has to navigate this organization through the crisis he would have said that yeah exactly yeah and then you have properties that i think one one thing that comes through in the book is the properties need investment right they need cash flow um to be directed into um into upgrading things versus other um competitors maybe that were like very recently built and so i'm curious and and, and that's something maybe you could have anticipated right that cash flow needs so I'm, I'm curious how you think about the original thesis and sort of that sort of oh it's it's not a cyclical industry anymore and like this is going to be you know this is a, a defensible business and then the crisis hit and like how 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 off the mark were they versus just Doing it in the in the wrong year, um, you know, and getting hit by by a, a pretty severe recession. So just just to, to the extent that that you dove into that, like I, I'm I'm really curious that how much of that was just bad timing versus just um, getting way out of over the skis on leverage and so forth. You know, that's I, I think that there's always a lot of both of luck and and skill that goes into these types of transactions. Um, it, it, you know, it is, is incredible that the lengths that 
each uh, player and investment firm will go into to make sure that they can take advantage of any time that there's going to be something that's lucky. <laughs> and then there's been lessons learned from Caesars uh, about, you know, if you really do believe in the business, then, you know, fight tooth and nail to keep it out of bankruptcy because ultimately it was, you know, the, it, it, the thesis did pay off, even though they lost a third of their EBITDA from Atlantic City just going away forever. And that's like, that's usually, usually a death knell. But the, you know, the company itself, with a lot of the different projects they had going, especially this, this online, uh, just video game, casino video game business that they bought for $100 million, wound up being worth $4 billion. So, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurship that, that went on um, throughout the ownership of Apollo and TPG uh, uh, that created a, you know, a ton of value for the eventual owners and shareholders. Um, uh, but, but it was, you know, it was, uh, it was during this frenzy time of, of uh, in 2000, four to six uh like lbo mega lbos where it went from uh you know maybe we'll, we'll target uh a company that's being uh you know not being run very well uh that we could find some value in we could fix it up we could roll it up with a couple other companies to all right well let's let's get a couple other private equity for doing these giant club deals that's you know that, that era of the 30 40 50 billion dollar lbos that, that happened you know seemingly once every other week um and a lot of the mega ones went you know went bankrupt uh like the it, during that era um it's you know it is surprising you look at the, there are studies that show that it, you know it, an equal number of of like private equity back LBOs versus just other companies kind of went public, went, went, went bankrupt uh, post great financial crisis. So I, you know, can't, can't slam all of the private equity deals, but the mega ones certainly were overlapped. It was just this bidding war. It was, uh, it was, you know, it was bad timing. Um, it was a lesson to be learned. Uh, and we haven't seen an era like that again. There's very, very few deals of that size and PE firms, I mean, whether they're just too big and they don't need partners anymore, but they're not, they're not, uh, combining to write, you know, enormous equity checks and, and levering up, um, you know, public companies to take them private in the same way that they used to. So I, I think that was, you know, definitely a mistake. Uh, and then also, you know, bad luck at, at the just the timing severity of the finance, great financial crisis, losing Atlantic City, <laughs> and then <laughs> ultimately having all the things that happened in the bankruptcy uh, uh, go against them the way that it did. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I like that was also luck on the other side, right? They had some pretty fierce adversaries. <laughs> they levered up the company too much. They couldn't, they, you know, ultimately it came down to you couldn't pay the bills. Right. If it's a if that's that's the idea, you have this great company, bad balance sheet, you're going to have distressed investors come in and try to, you know, rip it from your your, your cold, dead hands. Uh, and this was this is a primary example of that. And the investors themselves, I mean, they had they they had a lot of luck, too. And they'll, they'll like that four billion dollar sale of the, um, you know, video like online video game business uh, that was led by this Canadian entrepreneur. Um, uh, you know, Mitch Garber, you know, he wanted to do the online ga uh, gambling business for them. And Sheldon Ellison had just, you know, fought tooth and nail to prevent that lobbying. So it's like 
that business wasn't going anywhere. So they were just like, oh, you know, we see people playing Candy Crush and all these other games. It seems to be super popular. Why don't we just, you know, take the uh, uh, you know, World Series of Poker brand and, and turn this into a little like, you know, phone video game. Let's see how valuable that can be. I, enorm- and it's now, it's like, it's public underplay TK at like $11 billion, some, something enormous. It's, it's just continued to grow. So that, 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 like, that was a huge stroke of luck at the end of the case when, like, the parties couldn't actually come together. Um, getting the judge that they got was a huge stroke of luck for the junior creditors um, because, you know, he really prolonged things. If, if the case were abbreviated because they got um, a, another judge that was a little bit more... Um, you know, let's just say accustomed to mega chapter 11s, it would have gone faster and they would have settled sooner before the, the business bounced back after, you know, a little, uh, a, a little, a while in bankruptcy in 2016. And um, among other things, there were just a, enormous like strokes of luck uh, that happened for the, you know, the, uh, the junior creditors. Uh but they'd set themselves up to take advantage of it. And that was, that was part of the reason why, you know, they, they were so um, confident because of the facts of the case too. Like Apollo really did extreme things pre-petition to try to extend the runway. Most people in their place, most other private equity firms would have just, you know, sometimes you lose, you know, you win some, you lose some, filed the company, handed over the keys. And if they really believed in it, they would have put more money directly in the company. This wasn't that. That wasn't one of the things that they did. They they created a side vehicle where they thought they could, you know, keep their equity upside, um, you know, while developing some of the, you know, better properties, um, you know, while leaving like more indebted operating company, um, uh, you know, off to the side uh, where their original equity check was. And that's a contrast from Blackstone and Hilton. They just they they plowed money right back into the company and. You know, ultimately wound up being a great investment. So they, you know, they just made a couple of different choices, but it was also a different situation. So was it that um, that move? I think is setting up the read and then kind of figuring out the the valuation and trying to like shuffle value. Was that the move? If you think about the impact that Caesars had on how other um, distress situations play out now, and like the lessons that people took away, and like thought like, okay, this was pretty creative and like i can get away with that thing it was like was that or what were sort of the the key things that people have tried to replicate or, or take away from it and and yeah yeah so with caesars you, you look at it like this you've got this enormous company you think is 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 more valuable than it, it, you know it's currently trading at you know, let's say you bought it for $30 billion. You think it should be worth $40 billion. You put $25 billion in debt on it. You expected it to be, uh, you know, like, uh, um, uh, you know, just uh, uh, producing enough cash flow to cover that interest service and then you know, growing it. Uh, if you grow that, you know, you grow it enough, then it's an extra turn of leverage. And, you know, you've made, you've tripled, doubled or tripled your money. Um, but it what it, it the the cash flow doesn't cover the interest payments, um, and so you need to extend the runway somehow. So you can do a couple different things. You can go to lenders and say, 
hey, I want to reduce this billion dollar debt issuance, you know, by by half or 30%. So why don't we exchange what you have right now, which is trading for 40, 50 cents on the dollar, and I'll give you paper that's worth 60, 70 cents on the dollar. But ultimately, that'll save me 30 cents on the dollar uh, in, in debt. And so that's, that's what they did. They started doing those distressed exchanges. Then they were like, okay, well, maybe we could just prolong this by putting off some of the interest payments. So why don't we refinance some other paper by putting in you know, a payment in kind pick so we can pick the interest. They did some of that. Why don't we, you know, get a couple of, uh, you know, like pit a couple different lenders against one another and get fifty-one percent to agree to subordinate forty-nine percent, <laughs> and then swap them into a senior position in order for, you know, us to, uh, 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 I don't know, remove some of the covenants that are problematic to us. They did that, so they they had all these different transactions that they could do to avoid the inevitable was that they just run out of money. Um, and you know, that, that's what you want to put off and you can't keep on like raising more debt until the, until the business uh, turns around, you can actually pay your interest. So, you know, they, at the, at the point when they were like, okay, well, we're pretty sure we're going to run out of money. Um, there's so many good assets here. Uh, uh, we we don't want them to be totally bogged down by this really indebted structure. Why don't we give something that is reasonably equivalent value to this entity right here, move them into the growth entity and start funding them. Maybe if those receive some love, then we can, you know, we can, we can kind of like pull this out. And if it doesn't work out, well, you know, we've got to move these assets over here and the creditors are going to have to fight to get them back. <laughs> and that's what they thought. And that's ultimately what the examiner found, like the have your cake and eat it too, to him was like, there was like this, this internal memo that said, well, if we move these assets away from the opco and, uh, you know, we can try to grow them and, you know, and make, turn things around. But if it doesn't work out, then we will have a good negotiating position with respect to the creditors in a, in a bankruptcy, we can have our cake and eat it too. And he was like, I, I thought that was a real, you know, smoking gun. And uh, you, cause ultimately you can't, you can't be doing stuff like that. If company is effectively insolvent um, in, you know, that's what it, it was deemed to be. I think everyone agreed that it was, you know, um, you know, insolvent by almost all definitions by the time some of those transactions happened. Um, so it, it you're gonna you're gonna get sued if people think that there's there's money to be made if you do stuff like that. But I, it, this the the thing that people learned from that was okay. What ultimately did the examiner's report say that they had these actual and constructive fraudulent conveyance claims against, and also all these uh, uh, you know corporate governance uh, claims for? And a lot of them were simply because the creditors did not have independent directors during the time these decisions were being made. There's some conflicts of interest. It seemed like the, 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 the private equity sponsor was basically controlling everything. It seemed like the creditors didn't even have a say. So the lesson wasn't, maybe we shouldn't do those things. The lesson was, let's put some independent directors in there. And so there's this whole super direct, like super repeater director phenomenon that's happened since Caesars. 
uh, where uh, you know, law firms will advise their, their uh, sponsor clients to make sure that if there's some questionable transaction that's happening, uh, where it's liability management, maybe they're moving some assets to finance uh, off of the credit docs are very loose. They allow all these things. If you're doing any of these, appoint an independent director that's supposed to, you know, supposedly be representing the creditors. And, and, and that was the lesson that was learned. And so you've actually, you know, you've seen a, uh, more of these and more aggressive types of these types of transactions. And the worst thing that it had to happen in any of them is, is simply some form of, of unwinding it. That's it. The rule, it's just, the only lesson is, you know what? Possession's nine-tenths of the law. You move, you move some, some valuable asset away from the creditors. Uh, they can sue. And usually the worst thing that happens is you got to put it back. Yeah. So this is really interesting, a really interesting dynamic, right? Because on the one hand, and you pointed at this earlier, and I think I, I want to agree with it, that credit markets, I mean, there's the thing, this rule of thumb, like, oh, the bond market is so much bigger. And like, it's basically smarter than the equity market. And then the credit market, meaning just sort of high yield, high yield credit, um, it's, it's all institutional. So it is sort of um, less susceptible to mania and, and more rational, right? And and it should so, sort of more closely track underlying value, right? On the other hand, if that was true, I would expect some sort of reputational cost to some of these moves. And and I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you speak to that. I, I don't know that it, it exists. And I, I think people have argued in different ways, but one of the things that strikes me is like, part of why it doesn't exist is because the space is so flows driven, right? Like there, there are these moments, there, there are entire years where just like, there's a lot of inflows and people will accept any kind of docs, right? They'll go cop light, like everything that, that they would have definitely wanted in a deal five or 10 years earlier goes out the window because people just have to take, have to put money to work. And if they don't, then it's, it's their neighbor who does it. Um, so, so I'm curious how you think about that reputational aspect and what people can get away with, um, and, and, and just, just how that, yeah, how that played out. Like, and I'm curious about the phenomenon that you spoke to, right? Like the, this independent, like people just took it as a template rather than Apollo sort of being unable to, or like paying a higher cost for their credit in, in the future. People are just like, oh, I'm going to do this too. And it sort of doesn't have repercussions in the market, right? If not in the legal system, like just unpack this for me and how you think about that dynamic. Yeah, I, that, you, you know, and it's a great point that um, if there is uh, this, this type of, of activity that, you know, really is, is you know, uncivil, um, people's reputations should suffer. But I, I think in this market, it's at the end of the day, if it's permitted by you know, within the four corners of the credit doc uh, and you litigate and you win or you litigate and you don't or you settle it, it's fair game. Uh, and, and, and precisely because you're expected to be playing with other sophisticated people. Um, and if you if you overstep your boundaries and the specific examples, you know, people did think that Apollo had overstepped, right? Especially at the time of the examiner's report coming out. And, and they, you know, in some ways started to feel that pressure. And there was what was called the Apollo premium where they were bringing these buyout deals to the market and those, the companies that they were trying to buy and, and use 
those companies to issue debt to support those LBOs, you know, they were the ones that were suffering because they had to pay a higher interest rate. Um, uh, but that was only a short period of time. They went on a, a little bit of an apology tour and, you know, they, you know, they did some, some mea culpas or they said, hey, look, this was, this was unique at uh, you know, drastic times, called for drastic measures. We recognized that this wasn't perceived favorable by a number of counterparties, et cetera. So they, they went on that apology tour and then other people started doing some of the similar stuff that they had all just apologized for. So the premium disappeared. And we, we, we've tracked that at, um, you know, at Fitch and, and, and Insights and seen all, all of the, um, the major private equity sponsors. Um, the cost for their, their, uh, of borrowing for their companies is, is about equal, really. It just depends on the credit quality of the exact company, the deal. So there's no more, there's no more premium for that type of stuff. Um, and, you know, by, yeah, like, uh, um, uh, as a result, there's no real consequence for that, that particular brand of aggressiveness. Um, and in the other part is, like you said, uh, the, the, the flow portion of it, the fixed, fixed income investors and managers are just growing. Right, you know, Pimco had now over two trillion. Uh, maybe maybe heading towards three. BlackRock three trillion, heading towards four. Like these giant, like massive, um, high yield investment funds that have shown themselves to you know create great returns for their investors. Have been given tons and tons and tons and tons of safe money. Uh, and you know, created ETFs, um, these vehicles called collateralized loan obligations, the CLOs, you know, packaged, packaged loans in the leveraged loan market have created an enormous appetite for more leveraged loans. And this, and you know, these are you know, these are uh, uh, vehicles that where you're not adding a, I think, proportional amount of uh, sophisticated financial uh, players that will be able to aggressively negotiate the documents for all of the credits that they're buying. So they'll go in there and you might have smart people that realize they want all these protections as creditors, but you, you know, you got a CLO fund and you got, you know, you got BlackRock, you got, you got all these people are coming in. They'll be like, I, like, I'm going to, I'm going to fill like, Three hundred million dollars of this billion-dollar loan. If you, if you don't, and uh, so you're just like, all right, I, I, I would need to participate. I need to put money to work too. And for the most part, covenants are uh, are are very very loose. Uh, and so the creditors, no matter, it's just plain as day uh, that it's it, it's not going to be easy for them to um, force a company's hand if. Um, they run into to, to problems, uh, and then there's a lot of opportunity for gameplay, like adding debt that's senior to them, or have you know having two thirds strip their liens, or having 51 percent, uh, you know, vote to amend the documents. It's it, it's it, they know that going in, they have to participate, and it you know it, it's it's really yeah, um, uh, and just there's. Yeah, I guess there, there's no real consequence to getting too aggressive. You're still within the boundaries of the law. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that's 
frustrating if you're sort of covering it from the outside as an analyst. You're like, oh, like getting away with all this stuff. But I, I, I want to ask you like about your role, right? So you've you've covered the space, you you know the players, and when you look at a new situation or a situation that's let's say developing, you can kind of see that this come, you know, like the, the bonds are trading down and like something's going to happen. They're probably going to change ownership and somebody's going to get involved. How much is it chess versus poker? Meaning how much can you, when you look at it, anticipate, okay, this is what the cap structure looked like. This is what the, like what's happening with the company. I think X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Like these are the obvious moves versus people get in there. You don't know who the cast of characters is. And then, you know, you have the game theory play out and, 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 and it's sort of, you know, something happens behind the curtain and then, you know, out there emerges um, um, the, the, the final product. How much can you anticipate that versus how much is this just like the, the backstabbing and, and um, you know, the, the backroom deals? I, I, I can't anticipate very much, you know, I, maybe I would be an investor. I don't really know. I like a, there's great journalists that, that maybe could be players. But I, 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 it's, it's important to be kind of like the, the storyteller and, and as much as you can be an arbiter here where you, you know, you, you can, um, like, like me working with, I work with Covenant Review and, and credit sites. We're all part of the same organization. So I have, uh, you know, a whole stable of, of uh, Levfin lawyers, and financial analysts that I as a journalist can work with instead of having to a lot, like go out to, uh, um, you know, like these people that are involved that have an agenda. So that, that provides me with a little bit more firepower to, uh, you know, to, to like, call it for what it is and you know in and temporarily yeah people don't like to be like saying like oh this is part of an ugly transaction here <laughs> you know Howard Marks had to, to kind of like go out and you know somewhat explain how you know Oak Tree which was the junior creditor in this instance getting you know getting primed or crammed down has you know has gone out and help, helped orchestrate uh, these priming deals in board riders and trimark that you know really uh, uh, compromise the junior creditors. Those cases, and yeah, you know, you kind of explain it's uncomfortable. You gotta gotta kind of call that out. Be like, oh, you know, you think you, you thought this was you know unfair in this instance, but why? What about this instance? So I say you do have to try to play that role to the extent that you, you can kind of call it out for what is you know what is going on, um, uh, and you know, and then in the meantime it. It just is a very rich, fascinating industry because it is a common. It's going to be a combination of of chess and poker, depending on what stage, uh, like a restructuring or a liability management situation is at. Um, you know, and it's you know, and it's more involved than in that. You have to, you really do have to like know the industry really well, know the credit docs, and know the the like you know, where to, to come in and then know the players and a couple perfect examples of that type of thing, uh, are, you know, this talent energy, which, you know, say it's a, this, this interesting power company that owns a, with a number of different, uh, coal and, and, uh, and gas plants. And then one large nuclear plant that, um, you know, was over levered and has, you know, has a couple of projects that it needs to fund to, um, yeah, I, I think really, basically, ultimately support its its capital structure if it if it has any chance of paying back its debt, and quickly became distressed. 
uh, as uh, you know, a couple things went went against it in trying to to uh, you know build out its this this power portfolio, uh, and like all the distressed players, kind of descended on this one because it was a very large capital structure, and there was but there wasn't that much, uh, and you had to understand that there was so many. Uh, Kind of interwoven facets to the credit documents. Uh, there was the industry itself. Which way is it going? Which way power? Which way is power going to go? What are the politics behind, uh, you know, clean power versus fossil fuels? You know, then, then what happens when there's a warm winter? You know, what happens when a war breaks out over <laughs> Eastern Europe? Right? All these things wind up being part of the negotiation, uh, and you know, you so you've seen like. A couple of times where people were several steps ahead, kind of like stepped in, were you know were doing that that kind of like chess, snuck in there, provided a priming credit facility, and they look super smart. And you know ultimately the world changed, and all of a sudden the company's going to file for bankruptcy anyways, uh, or might possibly I don't know for sure, but it looks like that way. And you know, and now you got people playing poker. We're just like, okay, well, you know. We'll, Who's going to join which group? All right, I'll I'll join your group if you agree with it. You know, like, and and so it's it's just a really fascinating industry because of all of those different areas of of tension. Uh, and there's real narrative value in restructuring because at the end of the day, something does it goes through change, uh, mm. you know, and it emerges, you know, in a different way after uh, uh, you know after having. Uh, had some conflict yeah no i i feel like that's one of the main uh compared with with other parts of the market right you have um you have a lot of conflict and you have sort of a clear arc of like it starts you know these events unfold the stakes go up players clash and then you have some kind of resolution right and you have sort of clear winners and, and losers versus um i guess in equity markets you end up with a lot more open-ended stories and it, it often it's sort of a, a tbd as of the time of this writing like um I'm curious um, when people what what sort of the feedback's been from from people who who read the book. I mean, we talked about this earlier. I feel like there are some some pieces on on Wall Street that kind of come out as a are intended as a cautionary tale, and people take it as inspirational and they want to work at Salomon right after um, after reading Liar's Poker um, and sort of pick up very different um, very different stories or, or interpret the story very differently from, from maybe what the author intended. I'm, I'm curious how you think about what, what the message is behind the book and how you think about that and, and whether people, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that before convoluting the question any further. Yeah. I think what we're proud of is people in the industry think that we've done it justice and it's, and tell us that uh, you really captured what it is that I do right? as a restructuring attorney, as a banker, as a distressed debt investor, that's super important. You know, you have these books that sound fascinating to the layman or you know outside world, but people in the industry are like, it's not. That's not how it works. So we really we did want to do justice for our own reputations and for the industry, and that and that's been the feedback. Uh, and then, like, we do believe that people who are not in the industry or are new to it uh, find this to be um, accessible and and interesting, and like they get. They can they can all kind of glom on to something. 
Uh, and it's it's got those technical details. But again, I, I think the same thing with Barbarians at the Gate and uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, Den of Thieves, the, some very, very technical portions of those books. Uh, but the, you know, the, the characters and the story uh, kind of allow you to, to, to delve into them uh, to the extent that you want to. Uh, and you know, come out the other side and feel like you, you uh, read a good story. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, first of all, it's not just a great story, but it's also, um, I mean, it's not a field manual for distress because it's a very unique deal, but I feel like you get to dive into a lot of different areas from the courtroom to sort of the, the negotiations that happen and, and also the, the analysis and just trying to try and understand like, what is the rationality each, each, each point, like, why are they doing this? And, uh, how does it later come back to, to bite them or, or not? Uh, Max, I really, I really enjoyed this. This is uh, fun. Uh, and obviously, um, I, I'm a big fan of the book. Um, I don't think the, I don't think it's too technical at all. I think it's refreshing to really get into the nitty gritty. So, um, where, where can people learn, um, like what's the best way to like follow you or learn more about your work and, and kind of stay up to date? Oh yeah. So I, you know, like gotta get a website, but I, I'm on Twitter, uh, you know, at Max Frumis, and and so is uh, Sajid Indap of Financial Times, uh, and I I currently write and and lead a team covering special sits for uh, for Fitch. And it's called Leadfin Intelligence or LFI, uh, and 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 I'm pretty uh, pretty easy to find by just looking at for Max Frumis. Awesome. Well, I, thank you so much for for. I was going to say stop stopping by, but you know, like showing up on my screen <laughs> and taking the time. Yeah, no, yeah, it's been great. It's, it's the first interview I had where I, you know, I have a painting of Patrick Bateman like staring over the shoulder. So <laughs> it's me. become the running gag. Yeah, no, it's, it's I, I mean, I'm, I'm about to put up some kind of, um, you know, uh, a background, some, because I, I was told it's, it's too triggering. It's not people who have very different visceral reactions to the movie, which is like, I, I guess you learn. Oh, you know, it's a this is water kind of thing where like you, you think, oh, I, I see the movie in a certain way. And like, that's the right way to like, that is the interpretation. And I was like, no, people have very different views of, of what's happening there and what's important. It really sets the right mood to talk about distressed investors. <laughs> I think right? he's, he's probably, probably disproportionate amount of distressed investors. And you find that that movie to be, you know, iconic. Oh, is is that right? It, it, it strikes me to me when I think about this, he's he's probably right now, in a, you know, he's like in a conference room and he's like trying to silently scream his way out of the meeting because it won't end. It's Friday afternoon. And he's like, it's, it's sunny outside. And I'm like, we're going to we're going to spend uh, all, all night here. So um, <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. Luckily, there's work from home nowadays. Yes. Thank you so much, Max. This, this was a, a lot of fun. And um I really thank, I really appreciate it. Great, great conversation.